Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Food Peddlers Podcast. And today I have a really exciting guest for you. His name is Jack Schmidt, and he was born on the Kansas-Missouri border into a farming family. Grew up on a diversified farm producing all sorts of different farm products. And Jack has lived through a really interesting transition in agriculture. Um, He was born on a diversified farm and, and lived through that and then eventually went into a uh, a CAFO operation and learned about how industrial beef production has um, become part of American culture and now um, he is kind of going back to the roots of agriculture when he was a kid. He's really passionate about um, farm to table in America. Um, Jack has been in the radio business for a number of years kind of doing exactly what we are doing today so going around interviewing all sorts of interesting people around the state of Wyoming and he is currently the local food liaison for the Central Wyoming College in Riverton and uh, trying to build on the farm to table movement there and that's kind of how we got connected. Um, Actually Jack kind of found me through this, this podcast which is really cool. Um, that it's already attracting people and we've only been doing this for like a month and a half now so that's pretty exciting from my end at least and uh, I'm really excited to, to share this interview with you guys today um, so so Jack welcome to the podcast well, thank you Zach and I'm gonna get you to write my obituary sounds like you can do it pretty well oh man <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's something I never thought I'd add that to my resume but if if, if I can, I will. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Jack. Thanks so much for being on the show today. And uh, yeah, let's just d- dive right into it. Um, so again, you're originally from the Kansas-Missouri border, and you'll have to remind me what town exactly because I couldn't. I don't think I could pronounce it. Um, sure. It was, yeah. We, I, uh, I was born in Cass County, Missouri, which is the westernmost county on the Missouri-Kansas line, right there. Uh, with proximity to the stockyards, we were about an hour south of the stockyards, and I made my living in the in the livestock business as my father had before me uh, at the stockyards. But we had a farm ourselves out there in, uh, as I say, in Cass County. When my father, in in the genesis of the whole egg business, and this is kind of fascinating, and I enjoy uh, sharing this with people that haven't lived through it. But when, when we talk about agriculture, there's a lot of terms now that, uh, and, and a lot of uh, farming methods that are construed a lot differently than they were when we first started them. When modern agriculture really had the, the jets kicked in right after the Second World War. My father came home in 46 with literally uh, a half a million others. Uh, they growed up on the farm in Iowa, my father had, during the Depression. And there was a huge movement away from the farm. These returning GIs didn't want to go back to the farm. They wanted something else. And America offered a lot of something else. My father liked trading. He liked negotiating. So he became a livestock broker. And there's one of those terms. A lot of times now, trading 
has a negative connotation. Back in those days, it was a very honorable profession. As a matter of fact, it had to be because your work was your bond. And there was not there was not the legal aspects to it. We didn't sign contracts. I've seen literally millions of dollars worth of cattle traded with just a handshake. Mm. And so that's probably the one of the big things that as we got as 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 agriculture advanced, if you call it advanced, and got bigger and more concentrated, those kind of honorable contracts became less and less common. But that's what, so my father went into that part of it. I followed him into that after I left K-State. But as growing up, my mother, my mother was a farmer. She had, she had that uh, dirt under her fingernails from, from her Iowa origins. So as soon as they could, they purchased a little half section of land there in Cass County. Now back then it was uh, what, what we call about diversified farms. It was just a farm then, but instead of depending on chemicals, it was a, it was a crop rotation. We had a, 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 a usually a five uh, year crop rotation where we go from a from a legume uh, back to a grain and then back to a small grain uh, to some kind of uh, cover crop and then to grass and then back into the uh, repeat itself again which naturally, they call it regenerative agriculture now, mm-hmm. but that back then it was just regular farming. But as I started coming up, that's when the chemicals really came in. Now, you have to remember, we didn't have anything but manure before then. And so farming was not real pleasant. Uh, but with the, with the advent of chemicals and nitrogen especially, you remember that after the, the war used literally millions of tons of nitrogen for explosives. So they revved up and built these plants to make nitrogen, which translated into urea. So when the war's over, it had huge capacities and stockpiles of urea, which is a wonderful nitrogen fertilizer. We could put that on the ground, and this ground just exploded. When I was a kid, if we had the 60-bushel corn crop, that was really good. With the, with the advent of urea fertilizer, all of a sudden we doubled that. And it was fantastic. So let's not demonize everything too quick because everything had a purpose. Same way with herbicides and pesticides. We had no way to keep the weeds out of the crop. And we'd lost a lot of crops just because of the uh, weed infestations that you literally couldn't get out of there. Mm. With the advent of herbicides, you, you, you were able to keep that crop clean. But like a lot of things in America, we kind of overdid it, didn't we? And we didn't maybe uh, examine all the uh, uh, everything that would happen, the side effects on all this. So I just wanted everybody to bear in mind that in this in this great evolution of agriculture, what we kind of demonizing now was, was a great boon when it started. So maybe if we might wind up uh, in the middle somewhere, <laughs> it might be a little better. But that was we we went so. I, I remember so well the county agents, the extension agents were just. Uh, I remember Earl Butts was saying, "Well, you got to farm fence row to fence row. You know, you can't. We we got to produce feed to feed food to feed the world, and we did that with chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so that's and we had specialization. So if one guy was good at growing corn and soybeans, he sold his cattle and hogs, got rid of everything else, tore the fences out, and went to." growing corn and soybean. 
feeding operation or something, yeah. course of course you know and i want to touch on something i i totally totally agree with you on not demonizing um where this all started you know back in world war ii when the nitrogen was 
um, being produced on a humongous scale for for explosives and, and turning that into a resource for agriculture. I, I totally agree with you. I, I don't think it's right to to demonize that stuff, um, even the way it's done today, because honestly, there, I think there's a lot we can learn from the way agriculture is done on an industrial scale today, because a lot of those same principles are business principles that can be applied to um you know, more or less the new quote unquote new way of, of farming. And it's not really new because it was the way it was done when you were a kid. Right. Um, but right. the specialization is, is also like a really important concept that um, I'm seeing is more and more important just in our small area, trying to get farms to spec, maybe not necessarily one crop or, but 10 crops instead of 80. Cause when you've got 80 crops, it's really tough to get any kind of economy of scale and um, and and really become good at what you're doing, you know. And 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 it's also really hard for customers to know what you grow when you grow 80 different things. Um, it's just confusing from their perspective. So I think it's really important to to focus on specialization um, today. With with, I, I totally agree. And, yeah. what, and what we're really doing is we're producing for a market. And right. when I was a kid, our market was literally our family, you know, and the, and, and the very close proximity. So that's what we, we had a market for all those various things that we did, but we didn't do enough of each, any one of them up to make a living on. Mm-hmm. That market changed as people moved into the city and they required more food to be shipped in. And that and your technology went to where the specialization uh, is and and now we need to adapt that specialization back to whatever market there is. There's a, there's actually the market developing right now in there for for food that has a story. Right. Right. It, it especially like my generation is very interested in in food that has a story. I see it all the time yeah. and in in what I'm doing and um, I definitely agree. I think that's the direction we're going, but I, I think that there's some value we can take um, in that direction from the way things were done uh, industrially in that time of in that period of time. You know, it's interesting. I just saw. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, The Chef's Table. Um, it's on Netflix. It's amazing. It's a really cool show about chefs all over the world. And I just watched an episode about a guy in New York. Um, who's doing a farm-to-table restaurant. And I really like the way he described how um, industrial agriculture became a thing. It's just, you know, when America started expanding into the West, there's just, there was always abundance, you know, and where in Europe, there's never really was abundance um, like there was in America. So um, when you have abundance and it's easy to grow mountains of food, you know, your focus on flavor and story, of course, it's not going to be a priority. It's just, that's just human nature. You know, when you have an abundance of anything, you're not going to focus on, you know, the, the story behind it and all that stuff. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's my point is like, it's, that's just human nature. But now I think we're recognizing that we want, um, you know, to focus on food with flavor and a story and really connect with where, where and who it's coming from. So, um, you know, my friends that are still on the farm, and now we got a lot of family still back here in Iowa, and Illinois, that, that, you know, in commercial ag, and we call it, let's call it commodity ag. Right. Okay? Uh, and, and, and what they'll, when we get these conversations, they'll say, well, we have to do this to feed the world. And 
don't know. How they say there's going to be nine billion of us. How in the world? Can, you know, uh, it's staggering. Yeah. And I really think that we, we they'll say, well, how are we going to feed the world? How are we going to feed nine billion people if we don't use this technology? And I, you know, I hope that we're going to feed them out our back door. You know, everybody, ah, enough people grow enough to feed their neighbor is what I hope. Right. But they've got a very, very good point. It takes a staggering amount of stuff. Uh, and there's a huge, huge complex out there to feed the world right now. Mm-hmm. And it's very complicated. And that doesn't get dismantled. And I don't think we want to dismantle, do we? We just want to supplement that with, with, a, with a product that, Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, no, you're right. It, it, it's like we can't. You can't just shut off uh, the way industrial agriculture exists right now. You can't just turn the lights off and expect everything to be okay. Like, um, right. I, I personally believe it is possible to feed people um, with quote unquote regenerative agriculture. It's just you know, there's so many terms out there. It's really hard to define it, but I think it is possible. But it's not possible in the next five years. You know, we're this is like a, a long time. This is going to take to really transition to this, and and really what it, what I see is it's going to require far more farmers, just like it, it, lots of young people getting into farming. That's what's going to require and land and. Uh, infrastructure and a market and how and and the skills need to transfer to to young people but i don't see that happening in the in the next ten, five years it's going to be a long yeah, long yeah. lifetime it's process several, yeah it's a several generation thing yeah but and the, i think the main thing that has to happen is a a different attitude toward the price of food yes uh, when 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 dad came back out of the war uh, they said that uh, he said that he he was have for a family of four he was paying thirty percent of his income to feed us, and those now they say it takes eight percent of our income to feed us. So we've got an extremely efficient, cheap source of food, but the stuff that's produced the way we want to produce it costs more and deserve it's a whole different product what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. and it deserves a whole different price structure yeah it does it does and, and you can make the argument too that uh you know saving money on food in the short run is is um you know costing you money in health care in the long term i don't know enough about that to really have a really educated opinion uh, i think there's probably an element of truth to that but um that's a complicated conversation, but, uh, you know, in general, I think, um, yeah, I agree. I think just spending more money on food in the short run, um, there's a lot of ripple effects besides just your health and, and, and whatnot, you know, you're benefiting your, your area, you know, you're, you're benefiting your local economy a lot too. So there's, there's, there's a lot of benefits to spending more on food, but it's again that's a, that's going to take a while to to convince people to spend thirty percent of their income yeah. on on that again. Uh, that's going to take a while. It's a difficult um, thing, you know. At me as an entrepreneur, um, you know, with no income right now, <laughs> uh, it would be really hard to convince me to do that from spending thirty percent on on food. Luckily, I can just kind of live off of my. Um, produce waste <laughs> so i don't necessarily need to spend that but i'm laughing but that is that's a very good point mm-hmm. because i think what we're trying to go back to is that 
model that we had when we started that you feed yourself and your family first and then just radiate out from that concentric circles and feed as many more of you can of your neighbors. And that takes a lot more people to do it. Mm. But you're doing it in a, in a, uh, a very uh, constructive and a very respectful way that demands and is, 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 there's more utility to it. It's worth more. So mm. if we're going to monetize it, you know, it's, 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 it's not apples or it's not apples and oranges. You know, it's just, I mean, it's not, not all the same thing. It's, it's we got to, uh, the commodity market is totally different than what we're doing. Yeah. We to, we, we, I think people are realizing that, and especially young people. I think that's what I'm seeing now. Yeah, I, I, I see it all the time. Like I said, I get phone calls all the time about new food trucks starting around here, farm-to-table restaurants starting around here, and they're all by people about my age, you know, early 30s, late 20s, whatever. And, uh, you know, it's very exciting. So I want to um, delve a little bit deep the CAFO operation stuff. So you, you were you were doing that um it, you know, in your middle ages, or I, I don't know exactly how old you were, but um, yeah, I'd say I've been in my forties then. Yeah. Okay, in your forties, yeah. And you you touched on something uh, earlier. You said that trading was a big thing when you were younger. What exactly do you mean by trading? That's that's an interesting. That's the whole market concept of how we merchandised our livestock. Uh, back then, a lot of small producers uh, and a lot of small feed cattle feeders. So the, there was a need for someone to get those the seller and the buyer together. The average size cow herd in Missouri at that time was 12 head of cows. Mm. The average cattle feeder in Iowa fed about 50 to 75. So... There was a there was a need for somebody like me to buy cattle one two three at a time in small bunches and get them uniform size uh, you know make it where they would uh, fatten at the same time for those Iowa feeders so that they didn't have time to do it or the or the or the expertise to do it so that was the the market at that time and the stockyards. There was oh there was hundreds of us. So we call commission men, mm. and a farmer would call and give an order for so many cattle. We'd go out and and the sale barns or out buy them in the country or whatever. And then it got to where we were buying most of our stuff on the after you you get established and you know people and you know what to do, what they want, what kind of cattle they produce. Then you do do the work on the phone, and that's when you really get a lot of business done. But it was that personal. You know, we were we were friends. I was friends with all my customers, and that's what I was invested in their success. Mm. Uh, and that that that's nice. That's a nice way to do business. And that was the that was the basis of that economy. Now, as it got bigger, it got different. You know, uh, and, and it's it's a lot different now. Where we're doing it on the video, and uh, you don't you don't have that personal contact that you used to have. Mm, mm. And, and again, when you say trading, were you actually trading calves for another product? Like there was no actual cash no. flow? Is that what you mean? Or No, it was, it was a dollar thing. It was just, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, 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 an Iowa farmer would call me up in the fall and say, well, I've got this many books from the corn, so what do you think I ought to do? And I'll, well, it looks like 
Okay. All right. And that, and that went away when CAFOs became more prevalent. Is that correct? It became more specialized again. And that, it's still, it's still, it goes on in every little sale barn around the United States. But they're just a lot more. The players are bigger. Uh, producers now, you know, our cow, well, in this country here, our, probably our average cow man's got three to 500 cows. So uh, the, the numbers are bigger. And uh, they'll do a lot of it over the internet now. Uh, so again, that that personal relationship's not not what it was. Yeah. And that, another thing really really changed. You'll be interested in this because you're a marketer. Uh, one of the huge changes in the cattle business was certified Angus beef. Yes. Now, yes. Certified Angus beef came about uh, because a fellow that I knew at the stockyard bought the. Bought a slaughterhouse, bought a packet plant, in liberal kids, and that was in the in the mid seventies. And times were tough, and he was having a heck of a time with it. The uh, uh, American Angus Association had their headquarters in St. Joseph, Missouri, just an hour north of the stockyard, and so they'd come down to the bar at night. A lot of business gets done in those places, mm. and the, 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 I happened to be there at the table with a lot of these first talks were going on and over a couple of couple of highballs they figured out you know what if you could help us sell Angus beef we'd help you stock your plant with cattle to slaughter mm. and the concept of a, a branded product came about and certified Angus beef was probably the biggest changer in the industry to the type to the color of our cow herd you know every, everything was Angus for a long time it's kind of switching now but for a long time, boy, everything was black. Yeah. So that's, yeah. It, and and marketing, that, marketing is a huge part of what we do. Huge part. And that, that's another example of like, you got to, I got to give the, those people, whoever put that together, a lot of credit because that's brilliant marketing, you know. Um, but it came it, from a need. It came from a guy that was <laughs> desperate. From a guy that had, had, a, had a deficit of cattle to somebody that had a surplus. And that's a, that's a wonderful part of the economy when things work good like that. Yes, yes. So how did that how did that happen? How did they execute marketing Angus beef? Because that was definitely before I was born in my time. So how did how did that all become a thing? It's like now uh, you know you see Angus on a McDonald's menu is a big deal now. Like that means something yep. to people. People pay extra for that. Um, they do. I, I really don't know how that really became a part of my culture. Because, like, when I was growing up, I just assumed Angus was higher quality. Like, that's how ingrained it was in the culture when I was growing up, and, and it sort of is still now. What, did you know what Angus was? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've, got a, I've got a good friend that's, a, that's Amish, okay? Sure. And we were... We were traveling one time. I drive him around to horse sales and stuff. We were traveling one time talking about it. He's a very intelligent young man. And talking about uh, exactly this trend, you know, and how things change and how Angus became a cornerstone for quality. So people don't even know that Angus was a breed of cattle that that, that originated in, in, the, in the Isle of, uh, in the British Isles. They don't realize it's a certain breed of cattle. It's, Angus is just a quality grade for people. And I made the comment, you know, Joe, I said, you know, 
Amish is the same way. So I said, when you talk about Amish, people think about quality. Yep. They think about Amish furniture is good furniture. And he kind of swelled up. He said, you know, I had no idea I'd be a social icon someday. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, actually, we always kidded when I, I was on the meets team at K-State. And, and the, 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 when we're talking about different breeds, and there, there are breed characteristics to some extent, but what, the, what, what they always said was, told us was that, that after you get the hide off, they all look alike. And that's basically right. You know, within those breeds, there's a lot of difference. So it was a PR thing. It was a marketing ploy. Uh, and uh, Angus breeds wonderful. They're certainly, you know, they're, they're a great breed. But I would challenge anybody to identify uh, an Angus steak as opposed to another one after it gets on the plate. Hmm. What do you, got a question for you then. Uh, what do you think um, difference in flavor between breeds, um, how that measures up to how the animal is fed and treated and whatnot. And so, I, cause I've learned a little bit about this and I know some people around here who are doing uh, Romanola and uh, yep. Solaire and yep. stuff like that. And I've yep. noticed a difference in flavor, but I don't know if that's the breed or how it's fed or, you know, if it's grass fed or, you know, I, I, I don't know right. that stuff. Yep. And, and different 
Right. Right. And that, and that, to me, is all a matter of personal preference. Like, I'm a, I'm a guy who I get excited about a round steak. I like round steak because I like the flavor, and I know it's chewy, but um, I, I really like it that way. I'm not a huge fillet, fillet mignon guy. Um, that's the American pronunciation of that. Like Bouchelle and Bubble? Yes, yes, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a, uh, but, but yeah. That's what this this grass thing. I think it's wonderful because every every grass, every ranch has a different kind of grass. I got a different kind of management to to uh, to utilize that grass. Therefore, all these different grass things. Just because it's grass fed doesn't mean it's going to have the same flavor. They got a multitude of flavors. Oh yeah. And I think we should celebrate those flavors and and perhaps market them just like wine. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got an area that's got a, and we do right here, right here in the Wind River Basin of, of Wyoming, it's wonderful for, for, for grass finishing just because of the different kind of grasses here and the, and the, and the little moisture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow, the, the grass beef that, 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 that uh, I've got some friends that, that make, uh, the, uh, produce quite a little bit of grass finished meat. And it's just as good, you know, when I was feeding cattle, uh, for myself, I'd always leave one in the pen for a little extra time. And, you know, it's about 100 to 120 days of hard corn is what you put on a, uh, a finished deer, and I'd leave mine in for 150 so they get a little more corn. Sure. But the, these the, the grass-finished cattle out here are just as good as what I used to use 150 days. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that's the... We've become so standardized. When you go to Walmart, you expect when you pick up Tebow's steak that they just taste the same now at Thanksgiving and Easter next year. You know, yep. You'll get the same steak. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. That's the, and they do. They do a hell of a job doing that. It's all cookie cutter. Yeah. But for me, that's a little boring. I want a, I want a little diversity and the story that goes with the diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, that's what's so exciting and fascinating about this whole um well farm to table movement in general but like the beef specifically actually all livestock you know like the, i i had no idea and i've only been doing our business for two and a half years before i started this i really had no idea there was this much diversity and flavor between a wagyu grass finished or wagyu grain finished you know it, it's it's interesting and i think there's room for all of it you know it's not I'm not really a, a grass finished Nazi or anything like that. I think some I've had some phenomenal corn finished stuff that was still fed grass most of its life. Um, you know, I, I think there's room for all of it, and it's really exciting. Um, and, and you're right, wine is a great way, analogy for it. You know, it's like uh, every region in the United States can have a different flavor um, for produce, meat, for all of it. Yeah. It's exciting. And there's a there's a word for that, isn't there? Terrar, is that it? Yeah. Terrar. Yeah. The taste of the land. Yeah. Yes. And you look at the kids, you can taste where that critter comes from. And for me, that's, oh, wow, that's cool. You know? I get a little bored to eat the same one all the time. Amen to that, man. Yeah. Um, amen to that. So, I want to... There's, there's, there's oh, a guy that I met, but just as a side, there's a fellow that I met at a grass tech convention a few years ago that, that wrote a book, Mark... Watson, I think his name was. He wrote a book called Steak. He was a food writer, and he talked his editors into finance on a trip around the world eating steak. Now that'd be a cool thing, wouldn't it? 
Yeah. It's a, it's a great book because he'll, he'll go into every or different areas of the, of the world and especially the old country, you know, they would, they, they would have their own breed and their own terroir, their own way of feeding and their own grasses and inputs. And then he described the flavors. But what he said was, uh, when I had dinner with him, and he said the best steak that I ever had uh, was grass-fed, and the worst steak that I ever had was grass-fed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally understand, because, yeah, sometimes, if you don't know how to cook the grass-fed stuff, it can taste like a hockey puck, you know? Yep. And, and yep. that that's that's no good so um yeah so i wanted to touch on um your radio um career a little bit because it sounds like you did a lot like what we're doing with this podcast right now you go around and interview people in agriculture around wyoming correct no that was that was in missouri kansas still oh that was in missouri okay okay so yeah so how did you get into that and, and what did you do with that well, after after I realized that that uh, the feedlot wasn't it wasn't making me happy, it wasn't making my heart happy. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I quit them, and uh, well, I bought a little sale barn in North Missouri for a while and ran a sale, ran an auction, and then a friend of mine uh, who was a farmer uh, bought a radio station there in Missouri. It was one of the old, actually, it's the oldest station west of the Mississippi. But he literally bought it because it was the towers were on eighty acres of land that he wanted. Okay. Uh, and then he didn't really want the radio station; it would kind of fall into uh, fall into disrepair. Uh, it was a, a top forties, you know, uh, kind of a thing. But yeah. anyway, uh, he well, he wanted, he bought it for the land, and then he realized that the land they buried copper wires all over this eighty acres just under the ground to use for a ground connect. Yeah. So he couldn't farm it. So, shoot. So he said, well, I'm going to, going to, going to radio business. And there were still a lot of uh, small farmers in that area uh, who needed market information. And I knew all the sale barn people and all the cattle people. So I became the farm director there. Uh, and they, uh, it was, this was just about the time where technology was at the place where we had bank phones, uh, the, the cell phone uh, things. They were little suitcases that we carried around. And they uh, we traded for a, for a Dodge truck, them advertising, for a Dodge diesel truck, and they put a camper in it and converted that to a uh, studio uh, using the bank phone technology. And then I got sponsors to, uh, to pay for me to stop and give the markets uh, people the futures markets and the gray markets and all those uh, live cattle markets and hog markets were, were still very important to people. And so I'd stop wherever I was every 15 minutes, go on there and do the markets. And if I see something interesting, I'd just stop and, and interview them. And it was, my gosh, Zach, that was so much fun. Pe- people are so interesting. Amen. You know, when you, yeah, yeah. And, and especially when you can get them on their own turf and ask them a question about themselves. Yes. You know, that, that's that's where the, the, the passion comes from. So that was that, that, that was a lot of fun. I stopped at every rodeo and county fair, and if I'd see somebody out plowing, I'd stop and talk to them for a while. Yeah. And it was, and then and then the, 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 the big thing that I had was what we called the uh, feeder cattle roundup, because the USDA market news 
it didn't really have any on cams and the, the younger stock that was sold at the sale barns. They didn't have market reporters at all these little sale barns. I knew the sale barn people, so I'd just call them and ask them how the market was that day and kind of uh, gather all those numbers and put those out. And that's, so I guess that was that was my utility, was that, that, that people thought it was worthwhile to uh, to know what the cattle were worth and, they, and they'd listen in. Sure. But it was a nice... did you get to Wyoming? Oh, I just, I, have, I happened to come out on a horse deal, and I liked it. This is, <laughs> this is, this is just like stepping back 40 years, is the way I describe it. Mm-hmm. The, the attitude out here is more congenial for me. Yeah. So I, I just sold out and moved out here. And here you are. Here you are. Yep. Yep. Very cool. And it's kind of, it's pretty. It's it's very exciting on this whatever you want to call it local food thing, mm-hmm. because even though there's not very darn many of us, this is really kind of one of one of the epicenters of the country. If I think the not the, the idea is, and you know it very well up there, your country is even more than this. But I think the consensus is. If you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Exactly, exactly. I, that's that's what excites me about around here too. Because I I'm from Chicago originally, and uh, you know there, it's a very big deal there this farm to table thing. But but um, it's a lot easier to grow there. So growing in Wyoming, um, it's pretty remarkable. Like I was just on a podcast um, a couple weeks ago from a guy who's got a national podcast called Farm to Table Talk, and he wanted to interview me just because he's like, I don't talk to anybody from the West. Like, nobody nobody that I know of is doing this stuff, and he's, like, blown away that there's a farm right down the street from me that's growing nine months a year, you know? It's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I tell yeah. you, it's awesome. You're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the thing, what we talk about a lot here, and it's the same way in your country, is that it's so vital because in, in this area, this Riverton area, there's, it's how you count, but basically there's three roads coming in. Right. And if something happens, like the episode we had a couple of days ago, yep. a snowstorm or whatever, you know, if you're not producing anything here, which we're not, we're, we're doing a little bit now, but for a long time we weren't, in 72 hours, you're out of food. Yep. So it, it's vital, you know, that we, we, we get this going. I think people realize that. I Like I said, I, I really see the future as very positive in this direction. I think it's just people are getting more and more excited about it. And the fact that they're getting excited about it in the least populated state in the U.S., uh, that's got to mean something, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so yeah. let's talk about the future just for a minute. We're yeah, that's what my next question on. was. That's what okay. Yeah. What's, what CWC is doing that, that really excites me as an old as an old cattleman yeah. is that the, we have to rebuild our infrastructure on all ag, but especially on animal ag, and beef is the number one in Wyoming. We have hardly any processing plants yes. uh, in the state, and, and we 
need a hundred like him around. Yep. We don't need we don't need the big ones. I, there's been a lot of studies going on about exporting meat and all that, and there is demand for our meat. But I would really, really not like to see a, a Conagra or, or or the big guys put a put a plant out here somewhere, even if we had them to slaughter to slaughter a huge plant or even a medium sized plant. The the impetus right now is kind of on that small producer, and in our world, small is good. Uh, so to that extent, CWC has started an expansion, and they're trying to raise the money on the deal now, but get along pretty good uh, for a new ag center to to uh, help all segments ag, but particularly there'll be emphasis on ag or uh, meat processing. There's going to be meat processing lab. Because, you know, normally if you wanted to be a butcher and start a locker plant, you were either in the business or knew somebody it was and trained at somebody's elbow. You know, you did it. It was workforce training. Now all those plants are gone. There's no place for somebody to train, and there's a lot of demand. Butchers are sexy now. <laughs> it's a cool job, isn't it? Uh, all over the country. That's, that's kind of, the, that's kind of the, the rock stars of the world are the butchers. And it's, so we started doing some research here a couple of years ago about what it would take to, to train to get a, a, a certification program uh, to train butchers. And we did some research, and it's, you know, there's was some part popping up, but the only one that I could find, if you wanted to train to be a butcher, to get a, this, that, you can go to any land-grant university now and get a four-year degree in meat science. But if you just want to learn how to be a butcher, there was only one place in North America, and that was in Old Canada. So that, with the, with the demand for for the butchery trade, we thought, well, we need to address this. So that's that's where the college is at right now. We're ready to break ground on a new facility that will do a lot of things. But part of it is to uh, uh, help people to get want to get back into meat processing because Lord knows we got the cattle, we got the feed, we got the people to do it. All we need is that infrastructure with the processing and the marketing. And yeah. that's where people like you and that internet, and that's that's the most exciting. I'm excited about training people to be butchers. That's great. But this new marketing uh, avenue that we've got uh, that's literally worldwide where we can sit right here in the middle of nowhere and ship our cattle to, to the high population areas, uh, that's, just, that's just fascinating. So much, so much, and and you're so right about the uh, the shortage of processing in this state. You know, uh, I, and you you said three months. That's actually a really short turnaround from what I what I've heard. A lot of producers around here have to wait twelve months to get USDA yeah. processing, and which just means they're they're not going to do it. You yeah. Know? So all that production is not happening. So we have to get the infrastructure built. Right. Right, so it's exciting that you guys are doing an education project down there to get people to learn how to be butchers, because that's that's the huge thing. Um, there's Wyoming Legacy beef up here in, uh, or Wyoming Legacy meats up here in Cody. That's the fairly new USDA processing plant, and that's unbelievably exciting um, that they're able to do the USDA processing right here because there's tons of ranchers that can get their stuff processed, but uh, they have h trouble finding good butchers um, yeah. because, because it's a lost art, you know, it's, and uh, I think um, tr transitioning young people into uh, 
that trade would be hugely helpful. I mean, and I think a lot of young people are starting to realize that um, conventional college education is not as valuable as it used to be. I know I don't use much of my college education doing what I'm doing. Um, and not to say that college is wrong for everybody. It absolutely isn't. I mean, if you're going to be a doctor, that's you got to go to college. But I think there's yeah. just so much more opportunity in trades um, in this day and age that uh, people aren't aware of. And, and building something like what you're talking about down there is hugely valuable, um, and, and for, yeah. especially for Wyoming. You've got to do it. But Brad, Brad Tindall's our president, and he says, you know, he wants to get people – he wants – these students to have bloody hands. That's, <laughs> that's a wonderful analogy. You know, you got to get in there and do it. Yep. 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 That's you learn. So, yeah. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Well, um, Jack, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. I think we've covered a lot, and I know we're going to have more shows in the future. And hopefully, I can come down there and be on your guys' show and. And uh, we've got a lot of potential in the future. And real quick, I guess you guys are, are talking about starting a food hub down there, correct? Some kind of food hub? Yeah, and- this, is, this is just, I mean, we're like two weeks into it, but that's another one of those needs that needs to be, that, that, that should be addressed. And it, I love it when things happen organically. In other words, it just happens. And what we're finding is that this demand for local food has grown so exponentially in the last decade there's several farmers markets and they're wonderful but the, there's enough production now that we need another we need we need more than that whatever yes. more is so we're looking at forming a hub uh, for we're going to call it the uh, Fremont local food exchange where we exchange not only food uh, but also information uh, and education, uh, and and just that knowledge where people can come if they want to buy grass fed beef, they can come and we'll have a list of people that do or whatever. If they want to raise grass fed beef and want to know where to sell it, we can tell them who to sell it to. It's just that kind of a, a, a central place that'll have a certified kitchen where that producer can do it legally, keeping everything safe is a big part of it. So, like I say, this is just the very start of it, but uh, and then. Then we cooperate with the other people around the state, like you, and and like Jamie Purcell and Casper, mm. that are also doing this too. And then you know, then all of a sudden we've got a little system. Yes, yeah, and in in that we build that by baby steps. You know, we got it's like these kinds of conversations is how we start, and uh, you know, hopefully in the years to come that can become a reality. I'm I'm real excited about all of that. Um, sure. So well, I don't know what kind of mechanism you got for questions or anything, but if anybody's got any, uh, you know, we'd sure be glad to field them or answer them because that's I learn by answering questions. Yeah, and, and that's so, what. I, yeah. So, so where can people go to ask you questions to find the Fremont Local Food Exchange, or what? Where can people go to find you and your organization? Well, we don't have. We're not even. It's so damn new. We don't even have a website yet but uh, <laughs> just go to uh, 0348 JHS at 0348 JHS like John Harold Schmidt <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a Gmail and that'd probably be the best way to get hold of me 
Okay. And we'll include that in the description of the podcast so people can, can see it in typed form. But um, and, if, and if somebody's down here and wants to help and is able to build a website and all that stuff, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> We're ready. All right. <laughs> and really, and the college, and I, and I shouldn't be facetious, but that the college is really on board and they're developing programs for those students to help not only with the with that kind of development, but the uh, uh, the entrepreneur part of all this. There's just so many facets of it. You know, there's a lot to do, so we need a lot of help. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. It's, it takes a village. It takes a village. So, yeah. all right, Jack. Well, thank you so uh, much. Go ahead. All right. Well, I thank you, and I, I thank you for what you're doing. I don't think I don't. I hope people realize uh, if somebody's just kind of searching around for podcasts and have got this, how far advanced you are in this new age food marketing up there and, and it's something something to be emulated and it's cool out here in the Rocky Man the Rocky Mountain West that that, that, that kind of initiative is so so give me your contract contact info too and, and uh, we'll see what happens down the road amen to that man you're making me blush <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, 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 you know, it's gotta happen everywhere, you know, not just the big cities. So that's what we're trying to do here and, and just connect people. So, so again, Jack, I thank you. Oh, sorry. What? I said good food and good people. Amen to that brother. Yep. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jack, for being on the show and, and we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.